Hello, and welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Yuka Igarashi, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ruth Ozeki. Ruth Ozeki is a novelist, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. Her novels include My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, and most recently, A Tale for the Time Being, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in the National Book Critics Circle Award. For our Japan issue, Ruth Ozeki wrote about a photograph that she found of her grandfather, about what he left behind and what he passed on to her. She reads from the piece and from a linked poem that she wrote by translating her grandfather's poetry and weaving it through with her own verse. Then we discuss her essay, her latest novel, Feminist Buddhist Nuns, the idea of cultural gyres, and other themes that permeate her writing. Linked. Once, when I was a little kid, I tried writing a haiku. I must have been seven or eight years old, and some well-intentioned English teacher must have suggested I try my hand at it. Perhaps she thought I'd be good at it, that being half-Japanese, I would have a special aptitude for the form. Perhaps the rest of the kids were writing limericks and sonnets, and I wanted to write limericks and sonnets too. I don't recall why, but for some reason, probably having to do with resentment or indignation or stubbornness, I balked. I remember the balking. I remember what it felt like to sit with a pencil gripped between my fingers as my knuckles turned white and my mind refused to cooperate. It was my first experience with writer's block. I remember my mother's frustration as she tried to help me. Seventeen syllables. How hard could it be? Her own father was a haiku poet, so perhaps she, too, thought I would be a natural. Her father, my grandfather, was a complicated man, with three names and as many identities. He was born in Hiroshima in 1880 to a farming family named Yokoyama. Although they owned land, they were not wealthy people, and my grandfather, Kenichi, was the second son. Unable to ensure a good future for him, his parents gave him up for adoption to a wealthy family named Maehara who had no male heir. He took their name and became Kenichi Maihara, the first in line to inherit the estate. I'm not sure what happened next. Perhaps he didn't get along with his adopted parents, or maybe the Maiharas eventually had a son of their own. But in 1896, at the age of 16, my grandfather signed on as an indentured laborer, boarded a ship, and immigrated to the island of Hawaii to work on the sugarcane plantations. It took several years, but he eventually made enough money to pay off his contract and secure his freedom. He got a job in the post office and bought a camera. He opened a photography studio, and using the name Maehara, he became the first official photographer for Volcanoes National Park. He later opened a second shop just inside the entrance to the park, which happened to be adjacent to the Kilauea military camp. When he married, his wife and children, including my mother, all took the name Yokoyama. When he wrote haiku, he published under the name Shosei. When the moon was full, he and his poet friends used to gather at night for haiku kai, where they would drink sake and write poems. On December 8, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed, the FBI came to his house and questioned him. A few months later, they arrested him under suspicion of organizing secret meetings, owning surveillance equipment spying on a military facility, and operating under three aliases. They transported him to a Justice Department prison camp in the middle of the New Mexico desert, where he was incarcerated for the next four years. 
During this time, my grandmother supported the family by printing his negatives and then hand-coloring the photographs, making souvenir postcards of paradise, which she sold to the American GIs stationed in Hawaii. After my grandfather was released in 1945, he went back to Hawaii and tried to resume life there, but he'd lost his business and his home, and many of his friends had moved away, so he no longer felt welcome in America. He and my grandmother decided to return to Japan, but before they did, they came to visit my family in Connecticut. I was three years old. I remember the first time I saw him, he was sitting cross-legged on the floor in my parents' bedroom, doing zazen meditation. When he raised his gaze to look at me, our eyes were level, and he was my height, exactly. This is the very first memory I have, so it must have made a strong impression. It was also the only time we met. My grandfather died in Japan three years later. When I was seven, I visited my grandmother in the coastal town of Atami, where she lived alone in a little house on the side of a mountain next to a bamboo forest. Inside the house was a small Buddhist altar with a candle and incense and a framed photograph of my grandfather. And every morning, my grandmother used to make a cup of hot water and leave it next to his picture. When I asked her why she did this, she explained that he preferred it to tea. I grew up surrounded by my grandfather's things, his photographs, cameras, stamp collections, the furniture he made from twisted driftwood, the rocks he collected in the New Mexico desert. The prison camp had a workshop with a rock tumbler, and he used to cut and polish agate, jasper, quartz, and bits of petrified wood. When he went back to Japan, he left them with us. I believed they were priceless gems. Eventually, I got over my writer's block and started writing, not haiku, but stories. Later on, I got a camera and started taking pictures and making films. My mother used to shake her head, mystified. You're just like your grandfather, she would say, and this made me terribly proud. I have a strange photograph of my grandfather as a young man, in which he's standing, barefoot, on the upturned blades of two short, unsheathed swords, holding the blade of another, longer sword, pressed hard against the flesh of his cheek. His trouser legs are rolled up slightly, and his sleeves pushed back, and if you look closely, you can see a long metal skewer pushed straight through his left forearm. My mother once explained that he could stand on swords and not be cut, and he could pierce his forearms with spikes and not bleed. It was mind over matter, she said. I can't really judge the quality of my grandfather's poetry. I'm not a poet in English, never mind in Japanese, and the spare, concise haiku form continues to confound me. But I had an idea of translating some of his poems, loosely, and responding to them, roughly, in order to make a kind of renga, a linked verse across time. I remember the look my grandfather gave me when I was three, as he raised his gaze from Zazen and our eyes met. If I were to depict this as a manga, I would draw a sparking blue bolt of electricity traveling from his old eyes into mine, a kind of mental transmission, mind over matter. Then, now, another London air raid reflected in a Hawaiian moon. The moon wanes, and the earth unwinds through time, and still, destroyers, restless, come and go, grumbling like winter thunder, massing, always within range, droning out of earshot. We knew it was coming, and it's happened at last, December 7th. You knew? Of course, and we did too. Pearl Harbor, New York, Baghdad. Hunted down, 
captured, but my old wife escaped, day 15, and losing count in desert prisons, poets, terrorists, grandfathers, spies. Look up. Above the stockade I see a bird fly by. Look down. Lose sight. What bird? What fence? What paradise? Autumn of sand, accustomed now to living here. Pitiful. Old poems, like polished stones, tumbled words to break my teeth on. Thanks so much for uh, doing this today, Ruth. It's my pleasure. Um, so this piece that you wrote, um, Linked, is what's so interesting about it is that you have such a deep connection to your grandfather, but it's very mysterious. It seems like there's things you don't know about him. Can you just tell me a little bit first about how much you know and sort of where you have access to this sort of family history? Well, you know, I really don't know that much about him at all. Um, it, it's, um, it's surprising how much I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, everything I know is kind of hearsay and things that I think I remember my mother saying, but I have no way of really verifying at this point. Um, it, it's surprising, you know, and a little bit shocking to me that, you know, that I don't know more. What's interesting to me about this is that I have his photographs, because he was a photographer, mm. and I have his poetry, I have his haiku poems. And so really, you know, most of what I know about him, I know through reading the poems and mm. looking at the photographs. And some of the photographs, like the one that I, you know, described in, in, in the essay, you know, were really surprising. They were really kind of shocking. Yeah. And I don't really understand um, what he was doing in that photograph. He was standing on, you know, barefoot. He was barefoot, standing on two upturned swords um, with another larger sword, you know, pressed against his cheek and a skewer, you know, inserted in his forearm. And this was obviously some kind of militaristic, you know, something, but I don't really understand what it was. It really is maybe one of the scariest photographs I've ever seen. <laughs> one of the scariest, like, family photographs <laughs> yeah, you've ever seen, yeah. It's, if I had found that as a family photograph, right. I would be looking for more uh, answers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that, um, you know, the, the photograph was in an album, and the first picture on that album was a picture of Nogi Taisho, mm -hmm. who was a, um, a, a, a general in the um, Russo-Japanese War. Mm -hmm. And when the Emperor Meiji died, um, Nogi Taisho and his wife committed seppuku, um, because to, to atone for their, um, you know, for his failure to, you know, bring victory to his troops. I, I, I think right. that was the story. Mm -hmm. And um, so my grandfather was obviously a great admirer of Nogi Taisho. And, um, and, and so the first picture in the album was this picture of Nogi Taisho. And then the second picture was the picture of my grandfather standing on these upturned swords. So there was clearly some kind of, you know, you know, imperialist pro-Japan, mm. um, you know, uh, belief behind this. And, you know, so I can understand why you know, the FBI, you know, <laughs> arrested him and took him away, you know, he, right. he's kind of a frightening guy. Do you, do you find that you want to know more or is there some part of you that to find out more would be, would be uh, a little bit damaging to, to your idea? Yeah, well, I, I think that's true, but I do wish I, I wish there was a way to, to, you know, to find more. Um, he was a, you know, he kept a diary. Um, and, and all of his life he kept a diary, and, um, and there were volumes, apparently, 
um, of this diary. And when he died, my grandmother burnt them. So, mm, you know, wow. there was there was clearly, an, you know, an intention to erase, you know, erase his history and, mm. and his the history of his mind. Mm. So I can't help noticing this the associations between this history and what you wrote about in in the novel in a tale for the time yeah, being. yeah. In a tale for the time yeah. being there's just so many connections i mean just you know starting with just the concept of having linking two people through time mm-hmm. as well as what you just said about the diaries and sort of having these fragments of somebody who you're connected to yes um, i think this has been uh you know something i've been fairly obsessed with you know, throughout my entire creative life. Um, the first film I made, Having the Bones, was a film about um, my grandmother and grandfather and, um, and, and really about the meeting, you know, the place where history, memory, and imagination meet. And, um, and it's a very potent place, I think, especially for those of us with immigrant narratives. Um, because so much does get lost, you know, mm. when when you move cultures, when you move from um, from one culture to another, from one continent to another, so much gets you know drops away um, during that. And I think we were talking about earlier that sometimes there's a sense that um, the past generation wants to forget, um, mm-hmm. and and sort of the recovery process is not only sort of difficult, sort of just you know sort of just actually getting access to it, but sort of you're unburying something that very much they wanted to bury. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they're not willing to talk about it. You know, right. I mean, that, that's the other frustrating part of this is that, you know, they, they either are unwilling to talk about it or they just don't think it's interesting or, you know, or they just want to, you know, they've suffered so much they just want to leave it all behind. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, I think, you know, comes from this sense that, uh, you know, I mean, I was born in 1956, which was only 11 years after the end of World War II. And I think my mother really thought that being Japanese was a liability. You know, and so she just wanted to move past all of that. I noticed both in this piece as well as in your novel that there's you you do sort of touch on sort of the uneasy relationship between Japan and the states, mm-hmm. um, how hard it is to cross back because now is this person who who has to sort of immigrate back into Japan and how she's sort of mistreated that way. And then also, obviously, your grandfather, although maybe mm-hmm. there was a reason for him to be, <laughs> to be you know, um, detained. Um, there's, still, there's still this, obviously, a lot of tension that's, that's based in sort of the post-war era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, as, as somebody who is part of both of those cultures, is that something that uh, you're also drawn towards to, to talk about and try to sort of work out in your fictions the the kind of japan american relationship yeah thing you mean um well i suppose yes because but but not on a kind of nationalistic or cultural level as much as um you know i mean that that is who i am you know mm. i mean i'm mixed race i i you know i um you know I'm, I'm kind of like the meeting point between you know between these two you know these two cultures and these two histories and and somehow that is in my DNA, you know, and, um, you know, and, and growing up mixed race, growing up, you know, half is how we used to you know, talk about it. Um, there always, it, it always did feel like there was a kind of tension there between, you know, the two halves, you know, and I never was quite sure who I was or who I was supposed to be. Um, when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of mixed race people around. And so, um, you know, it, it, it seemed you know, very odd and unstable to to be mm-hmm. who I was, you know. Um, you know, my face never, it, it, you know, it, it was almost like my face never resolved into either, you know, into either a Western face or, or an Asian face, you know, it was just, you know, sort yeah. of 
always shifting, you know, in between those those two, uh, you know, facial types. And mm. so it was it was odd, you know, it was an odd odd way to 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 grow up. And um, and I think that's probably why I've always been, you know, I've, I've certainly been drawn to write about that. You know, one of the most interesting characters that you've written about is. Um this uh, Zen Buddhist priest mm-hmm. um, in A Tale for the Time Being. And I know that you've also, uh, you are a Zen Buddhist priest, is that yes, right? Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. And um, so I was, I wanted to know a little bit more about how this character came to be mm-hmm. and um, how it's, how it has your influence in it. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the character's name is Old Jiko and she's 104 years old and she's a Zen Buddhist nun. And, um, and you know, I don't know exactly where she came from. In a way, I think that she's, um, you know, she's she's kind of an, you know, an archetype in a way. Um, and you know, I think that there were a lot of, you know, I, I think certainly there's a little bit of my mother in her. There's a little bit of my grandmother in her. There's, um, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm familiar with the writings of, of um, you know, there, there's some, there's a wonderful um, Buddhist nun. Uh, named uh, Seto Uchi Jakucho, mm. um, yeah. who is you know here in Japan, and she's a national treasure, I think, and she's a, a former novelist herself, and and uh, you know, so she she was a kind of an inspiration, I think, certainly for the character. Um, I, she's a wonderful, um, really wonderful person. I've never met her, but I would really love to meet her someday. I, I admire her tremendously, um, and so I think that you know the the character kind of grew out of out of all of, you know, all of these different kinds of influences. I mean, it's always difficult to know exactly where, you know, a character comes from. But I also think that there's a, um, you know, that there's a sense in which, you know, readers really like that character. I mean, you know, readers identify with that character. And and, um, and in a way, I think that we all recognize her, you know, that even if you're not, you know, a, even if you're not a Japanese, you know, 16-year-old schoolgirl, you know, we all have, you know, an inner Jiko, you know, yeah. we all have this this kind of wise grandmother who sort of, you know, lives inside of us somewhere in our imaginations, and, and so we recognize her as a character, mm. you know. Yeah, I think we also all wish we had one of her. Yes, <laughs> yes, well, in that sense, we do have one of her, because by wishing it, it, it actually happens, you know, I mean, we, we all, you know, we um, we recognize her, we recognize, you know, the, the things that she's saying, mm. um, and and so, you know, in that sense, even if we don't actually have, you know, a great grandmother, a hundred and four year old, you know, anarchist feminist <laughs> Buddhist nun yeah. for a great grandmother, you know, in in some way, um, in some way, we know her intimately. Um, you mentioned um, Jack Jackjo. Jackjo, yeah. Um, and she's uh, she's a really interesting figure that not many people in uh, the West know about. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Just the fact that she's was quite a feminist and wrote all yeah. these sort of almost racy novels. Very racy novels, yeah. Um, some of them are banned. and yeah. yeah, so can you can you say a little bit about sort of your influence with her? And, sure, sure, sure. I mean, I don't, you know, as I said, I don't know, I don't know, uh, you know, I've never met Jacucho myself, but, um, you know, she was, uh, she was born um, Seto Uchi Harumi. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Harumi. Was it Harumi? Yeah, Seto Uchi Harumi. Mm-hmm. And um, she uh, started um, writing quite early on, and, um wrote really, you know, very explicitly autobiographical uh, novels about, um, about her love affairs and about her 
um, you know, about her life, you know, her family life. And um, she became, you know, quite notorious. Um, she, I think, was married, and uh, then her husband was older than her, and she and, and was a professor, and she ended up, I think, running off with um, one of his students and, mm-hmm. um, and abandoned, you know, left, had to leave. Well, it wasn't that she abandoned, but she was forced to leave her child behind. And, um, and so this was, I think, a, a source of torment for her. I mean, this is all kind of hearsay. Mm, you know, this is mm. this is the stories that I've read about her, um, and she. But then she, you know, she wrote about this kind of thing in her novels, and she became notorious too for writing about sex from a woman's point of view. So mm. she was labeled a pornographer by the primarily mm. male literati of the time, and, um, and and you know was of course very popular as well. You know, <laughs> <laughs> her books were very popular too. And then um, when she became when she hit, I think around fifty years old. Um, in an interview I read that she said that um, she realized that if she were to continue writing that she wouldn't she really needed a backbone right and I mm. think she I think she really had a kind of a um, it seems like she had a breakdown of some sort around that time and that's when she decided to shave her head and become an ordained nun okay and um, and she said too I think that she was willing at the time to give up um, you know to give up writing completely but you know if, if that's what if that's what happened um, and you know as we were fortunate because that that didn't happen and she continued to write and um, subsequently she translated into modern Japanese um, the uh, tale of Genji mm-hmm. right and I think once again she and and she you know was was you know uh, became very famous for this um, and um, I think too her emphasis there was very much on the women's experience I haven't read it myself, but that's that's what I've I've read about it. Um, and she is, you know, she she's a wonderful person. I mean, she's I think close to ninety now, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And um, she's still politically very active. When um, Japan was uh, opening up the uh, nuclear plants after the earthquake, she was out there in a wheelchair doing a hunger strike to protest that. Um, she's a, you know, she's still, you know is giving talks and, and, you know, is, is very much engaged with, um, Japanese public life. And, um, and I read this other interview that was very funny. She said, um, somebody asked her, the reporter asked her, um, if she ever regretted, um, ordaining and becoming a nun. And her reply was something like, um, she said that she never really anticipated living as long as she's lived. And she said that (laughs) had she known that she was going to live so long she might have postponed it <laughs> she said she thought she might have gotten the, the timing wrong right <laughs> that sounds like something that Jiko would say yeah too. exactly 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 so I mean you know she clearly has a has a wonderful sense of humor and yeah. um and uh and I think that was inspiring to me when I was writing the character one of the things that's also really interesting and so well done about your book is that it seems to sort of take these um sort of familiar things about Japan. Mm-hmm. It uses a lot of markers. It talks about suicide, it talks about bullying, mm-hmm. it talks about, you know, there's a Hello Kitty lunchbox. Yeah. And there's a way, there's a sense that, you know, that's sort of the familiar things that people know about Japan. Mm-hmm. Sort of, um, but you manage to sort of tweak them a little bit. You know, your Zen Buddhist nun is, is hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> has a sense of humor. And there's a way that I think um, it's quite nice how you were able to sort of use these sort of things and confront them, mm-hmm. but sort of 
make them sort of more real than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wondered if you ever felt like that about the way that Japan is represented. When, when we put together the issue, we, we thought, I thought a lot about these are the things that people think about Japan and how do we get beyond what's sort of projected about Japan in the West. Right, right. No, I did think about that very much. And, and you know, I chose these kind of iconic images on purpose. I mean, I was really thinking about it. Um, you know, one of the primary images in the, the book is this image of the, the oceanic gyres, mm. right? The, these, you know, huge currents, oceanic currents that, um, that really are, you know, bringing you know, water and, and now actually the, you know, so-called debris from the tsunami, you know, sort of bringing them from Japan over to the West, right? And these, these huge, um, these huge circulating gyres. And, um, and I was thinking about the, you know, um, you know, of course, the other thing that these gyres are bringing over and, and, you know, and, and, you know, we have these kind of great garbage patches, Mm -hmm. you know, they're called the great garbage patches of, you know, plastic and various other kind of debris that, that ends up, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, in the middle of the in the middle of the gyre, right? And um, and I was thinking about culture, you know, and cultural gyres, and about how you know something like Hello Kitty, you know, the image of Hello Kitty kind of gets caught up in this these great cultural gyres and spreads throughout the world, mm-hmm. right? And but it changes too, and in the same way that you know that for example in the Great Garbage Patches, you know, in, in the you know the Pacific Ocean, you know. Do, uh, garbage gets broken down into, you know, it's called plastic confetti, right? And so these, these you know, these objects or these artifacts become kind of broken down and degraded mm-hmm. um, and changed in so many ways and, um, and then consumed by fishes and, you know, various other kinds of things, right? And so I was thinking, well, that's kind of interesting because you can, you know, news functions the same way, you know, news... Yeah. You know, news gets caught up in these kind of gyres that exist on the internet and gets broken down and degraded and, and you know, altered and changed and, and you know, by and eaten by fishes. Internet yeah. fishes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. And and so you know, I I was I did choose these kind of almost stereotypical iconic images of Japan, um, like the maid cafes or the Hello Kitty lunchbox or um, you know, as well as issues like bullying and suicide kamikaze you know and and really wanted to um you know to look at them and to you know to kind of turn them and look at them in different ways because i think that you know um in the normal you know in the normal you know when when these images get caught up in the gyres they become simplified you know Mm -hmm. they become they become kind of um uh they become generic Right. Yeah, they become unrecognizable in right. a way, right. and so I, you know, my idea was to kind of interfere with that process a little bit, and to, um, and and to do exactly what you said, and, and I'm I'm delighted that you recognize that. That that's, yeah. Wonderful. I think what, one of the things is that there's a way that the sort of initial response to something that's a stereotype is to avoid it, mm-hmm. and um, I think the much more interesting choice, which is what you've done, is to play with it. Yeah, um, yeah. which is. Yeah. It's harder too, I think. Yeah, yeah. but it's it's interesting. I mean, that's that's the wonderful thing. It's it's you know, you, once you start, you know, once you locate something, you know, and you choose something, and you start to press on it, you know, it 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 opens, mm. you know, and it opens into something, you know, complicated and magical, and you know, um, and extremely compelling. I think yeah. um, they they become stereotypes for a reason. You know, there's something there that that's almost, you know, that that's very that catches you. And um, and so to to go further with that, you know, to go to go deeper into it, I think is always interesting. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask one last thing, um, which is uh, that you talked about uh, the gyres uh, 
um, having been a, uh, bringing over debris from the tsunami, and that's obviously such a big part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had heard that you uh, were writing a tale for the time being, sort of before the tsunami happened, and then it, it, it sort of went through a radical shift, or obviously had to, mm-hmm. um, when the actual earthquake happened. And I thought maybe you know that was such an interesting story, and I thought maybe you could sort of elaborate on on what happened with that process. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I started writing a tale for the time being in, in December, I know exactly, December of 2006, you know, because when you're working on a computer now, everything has a date and time stamp, yeah. you know, so um, you can't lie to yourself about, you know, how long it's taken you yeah. <laughs> to write a novel, right. um, you know, as much as you might like to. And uh, so, yeah, I, I started writing it in December of 2006. That's when the voice of the girl first, you know, now first came to me. Um, and uh, I knew, you know, I knew certain things about her. I knew that she was writing a diary, you know, she was writing in English. Um, I knew that she was writing to somebody, right, which is a little bit unusual because that's not what a normal diary, you know, would be. Um, she, she had this kind of sense of, of confidence that there was somebody out in the world um, who would find her diary and read it. And so she was writing to that unknown person. So then, you know, she didn't know who it was, and neither did I at that at that time. And so then, you know, I, I it was my job as a novelist to then, you know, try to find Now's reader. Mm-hmm. And it was a very interesting process because it was like, um, you know, it was it was like auditioning for a play, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, or a, a film. And I would think of a character and invite the character into the into the fictional world, and I would arrange for the character to discover the diary. Right. And the character would start to read the diary and would start to react, you know, would get caught up in it and start to react. And then the character's reaction would, you know, change something in the diary. So there was this kind of backward, and, you know, backward and forward motion. And, you know, and the book would start to grow. You know, the story would start to grow. And, um, you know, it's like a fictional world that just starts to inflate. And, you know, it would get all kind of like big and plump and promising, you know, un- until you know, one moment, you know, maybe 50 pages in or 100 pages in, you know, I'd suddenly confront the manuscript and realize that the fictional world had kind of collapsed, you know, mm-hmm. the air had gone out of it. And um, and that was an indication that, you know, that I, the reader, you know, I, I was the wrong reader. And so then I would usher that character out of the fictional world and invite the next character in, mm-hmm. you know, and do the same thing, arrange for that character. Maybe it was a woman this time or, yeah. you know, a man or, a, you know. And, um, and, and, and the same thing would happen, you know. And um, I did this, I think, probably about four or five times, right? And uh, until finally, at the end of 2010, uh, beginning of 2011, I, I actually finished a draft of the novel, completely different from the novel as it exists now. Um, different reader, you know, um, different storyline. Uh, and then um, I was just getting ready to submit it to my editor. Um, in March, when um, the news of the earthquake and tsunami hit, and um, I'm, I'm sure you too, you know, the whole the entire world just watched that event unfold, and um, you know, and and I became, you know, quite obsessed with it, and and um, I you know have friends and family in Tokyo and also in Sendai, so of course immediately, you know, I was I was um, concerned for you know and terribly worried about their safety, and. Um, 
And then, you know, after a few days, I, I was able to get find them and get in touch with them and realize that they were okay. But by then, the, you know, Fukushima mm-hmm. nuclear reactors were, you know, were melting down and exploding. And, and um, you know, it was just a cascading disaster. It just, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I was, I was just, you know, I, I was just terrified. I mean, it was, it was a, um, you know, it was a, we all, the whole world, I think, just kind of, you know, um, just watch that in, in horror. And, and I think that there are some kinds of catastrophes, some disasters that are so powerful and big that um, they, they kind of draw a line in time. And um, somewhere during this process, I realized that, you know, that the book that I had finished was, a, you know, it was like a pre-earthquake, right. pre-tsunami, pre-Fukushima book. Mm. And now we were living in a post-earthquake, um, post-tsunami, post-Fukushima world. And um, and so that's when I you know I, I withdrew the book from uh, submission and thought about it and that's when I decided that um, it was actually my husband who suggested this but um, you know the book was clearly irrelevant and as it as it stood and um, and he was the one who suggested that I sort of enter the book as a character myself right, right? and um, it was an interesting. It was an interesting idea because, in a way, it was as though, um, you know, by doing that, it would break the con- break the fictional container. Mm-hmm. You know, the, a novel is like a fictional container, right? And um, it would break the fiction and allow, you know, reality to kind of penetrate the fictional world. And that's what was happening anyway. You know, it was it you know that that's what the you know the effect of the tsunami was to was to kind of break the world in a way. You know, right? And. Um, and because the sort of the Japan that you had made is not no longer right. exists. That's right. Okay. That's right. That's right. And I think that 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 was true for you know I think that's been true for right. for Japan too. You know there there was a a Japan that existed before the tsunami mm-hmm. and before you know Fukushima, mm-hmm. and that Japan is not no longer. You know mm-hmm. it, it it has been broken. Yeah. And I think people don't quite you know nobody knows how to think about that and how to feel about that. Um, I think if it had just been um, you know the earthquake that would be one thing, but it's not just the earthquake. The the you know the Fukushima um, c- scenario is um, you know it, it continues. It's not going to stop anytime soon. The auditions stopped, and then it was Ruth who ended up being the the reader who now found. Yes, that's yeah. right. And and so what I ended up doing was taking the manuscript and basically unzipping it. Mm, you know because yeah. it, it had been told through you know interleaved yeah. stories. Right? Yeah. And so I unzipped the manuscript. I threw about two thirds of it away. Wow. And um, started rewriting it in May of 2011, and by December I'd finished it. So it was very fast mm, once I got yeah. once I knew what I was doing. It makes me think of um, Deborah Treisman was here earlier mm-hmm. this week, and mm-hmm. she was saying somebody had asked her about um, fiction written during times of um, mm-hmm. very great disasters, um, 9/11, for mm-hmm. instance, and she had she had just made the observation that she she thinks that something like that takes quite a long time. To be processed in fiction, mm-hmm. um, whereas obviously this sort of nonfiction can can come quite quickly. And that's exactly yeah. you know she's exactly right, and I think that's exactly why um, I felt the need to break the fictional container. Mm. You know that the only way to respond to an event that is still emerging yeah. is using nonfictional you know the, the the vocabulary of nonfiction. Right. And so that's why exactly why it was so important to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know the book also becomes in this really interesting way about the 
the difficulty of writing a book. That's another thing that makes it feel very, very truthful in this sort of layered way. Mm -hmm. um, this, this idea, and you know, t to put to put yourself in there, and to also show somebody struggling to write something is, mm -hmm. is really amazing. And is that something that you've was new for you when you were writing? Mm -hmm. You mean putting? Yeah, putting something like that, uh, uh, the reality of a writer's mm -hmm. um, struggle, for instance, into your narrative. Well, I've never, um, I, I've certainly never written about a writer before, but. Um, you know the it, it's you know it, it's territory that I'm obviously you know intimately familiar with and and um, you know the character of Ruth um, you know in in the book is yes is is you know struggling with writer's block she can't really um, you know she can't really she's just you know she can't really write a novel and she's you know she's kind of given up writing fiction and she's trying to write a memoir but she can't really you know, focus anymore and, um, you know, and, and make any progress with the memoir. So she's kind of failing, you know, to write this memoir. And so when the girl's, you know, diary, when Naoko's diary, you know, sort of washes up on the shore, she's overjoyed because it gives her, you know, something to kind of um, obsess about and, and uh, you know, and, and yeah, just, you know, become obsessed about. And it gives her a reason not to work on her on her own book. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's it's interesting. It's kind of funny because, you know, it was the whole thing was a bit of a game, too, in the sense that, um, you know, the way I look at the Ruth half of the book, right, is that is the failed memoir. You know, mm -hmm. the, Ruth's half of the book is Ruth's failed memoir. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, Ruth is a fiction writer, you know, and how... You know, how would a fiction writer fail to write a memoir? Yeah. Well, you know, she would turn it into a fiction, right? right. And so, so that's exactly what's happened here, right. you know? Um, yeah, and I think one of the things, to just uh, go back finally to uh, the story that's in Granta, mm -hmm. um, one thing that links those two is that it also starts with sort of this writer's block. And, <laughs> and then the way that you are able to um, access this writer's block in the end is to sort of you know, your grandfather's poetry washes up yes. and you're able to respond to it and in that way I think it's it's sort of quite apt. Um yeah. That's really beautiful. I hadn't I hadn't actually make that made that connection, but you're right. It yeah. it's come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for talking with uh Granta today. Oh thank you. And um it was quite a pleasure to hear you read. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks for listening to the Granta podcast. Available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud, and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, please visit our website, granta.com.